Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right, team, welcome back to the podcast. I am here with Sandeep Chenikeshu. How are you, my friend? Hi, Joseph. I'm fine, thank you. So good to talk to you. What's funny is you are in Austin, Texas. I am in California. We didn't get a chance to make it work out where I could talk to you in person in uh, Texas, but we'll get back to it soon. But I'm stoked for today's episode just because Sandeep is someone who's had not only an enormously, incredibly successful career and one that I think he would say is also riddled with a good amount of failure and you know getting picked up and, and figuring out how to move forward. But someone who's really just had some pretty fundamental impact in the world that we live in today and the things that maybe today we take for granted. But let me just mention a few things just kind of so we know who we're talking to here today. And then we're just going to get right into it because I really appreciate getting to know you and your perspectives just on how people should think about treating one another. So currently, I know you're the COO of Under, um, which is uh, a company that's doing some pretty innovative things there in the it's the, like kind of the radar space. Am I correct on that there? That's great, Joseph. Yeah. Also, the uh, his life and story has brought him from, this is a PhD in electrical engineering who's really started in the world of that we use today and take for granted, from mobile to things that are kind of in the, in the air that we don't always are aware of. Has done some time in the semiconductor industry, uh, worked at Ericsson Mobile as a CTO and then president. And then the good old BlackBerry days where we're all very familiar, some of us that can remember the BlackBerry days was president over there as well. Worked on the senior executive team there at AMD. Is the author of a book called Your Company is Your Castle, which we'll get into. And some really cool facts that I don't wanna miss out on, so we'll just maybe come back to them later. But one of the things that he was, uh, we were catching up and getting to know each other, said, you know, I was on the team that invented Bluetooth and started talking about 2G. And again, these are these things that you meet people sometimes that you have no idea that are so fundamentally rooted in things that we use every day. So Sandeep, I'm stoked to have you on, man. Thanks again for being, did I miss anything? No, actually you've been more than generous. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. You're most welcome. Well, look, there's so many different places we can start with here. The one thing that I, it actually stuck with me even since the first day we met when we started getting to know each other. You talked about, you said, I live a charmed life. That was something you've said to me and probably have said almost every conversation we've had to some extent. Someone who's lived a life that I just read your rap sheet on may argue that, you know, quite a tough life, like one that's probably riddled with a lot of corporate type stuff, you know, high risk, high stakes, shareholder management, all the things that come with maybe not necessarily painting the picture of a charmed life. But can you talk a little bit about more about why you believe you've lived a charmed life? Well, you know, it's a good question. And the reason I believe I've, be, I've, lived it, I've lived a charmed life is because, you know, I don't think I really took studies seriously till I was 15 or 16. And uh, I've told a lot of people that, you know, my siblings were really smart and they brought home fantastic report cards and I never did. But my parents never told me that, uh, or made me feel I was dumb, you know, but... Anyway, one thing led to another when I was a failed cricketer and I couldn't get into the Indian Air Force. <laughs> or I got in there, I passed the exam, but I was not allowed to go for the interview. Uh, I decided, okay, let's go into engineering. And I got a, a seat and I fortunately did very well. 
And then that led me to go to another institution called the Indian Institute of Science. I got a management diploma. And then I got fellowships to go and do a, a master's and a PhD in Canada and America. And uh, as soon as I graduated, I got these fantastic job offers. And then one, somebody or the other in some company always picked me to come and lead something. And uh, I, the weird thing is I never applied to any of these companies. Or these roles yeah. within the companies? No, they were different companies. And I would meet people in conferences or I'd meet people and have an argument with somebody I remember once and he was so impressed that he said, okay, I need you in my company. <laughs> and, uh, and so one thing led to another and I always got opportunities that I believe few get, you know, to lead these advanced developments, whether it was 2G, 3G, uh, various things around the world. And, uh, you know, and they were successful. I got picked to run operations in different countries. People trusted me with things. And, um, you know, all through my life. And I was also fortunate, very fortunate, to recruit good teams. And I attribute any success that I've had to my teams. You know, as uh, there's a saying that says, every general is only as good as his troops. Yeah. And that's so true. You know, I just had the best troops. So it was, uh, and, um, you know, I've been fortunate also in my family life. I have a wonderful wife. I've, in my book, you notice that I've credited the book to the my all the people I worked with and my wife for 33 years. And uh, it's just been super good. I mean, did you find that you always had that perspective in the moments that you were especially giving these I would say equally given an opportunity to lead something and the burden of leading something. But did you always have that perspective or did it take years to kind of look back on it and say, you know what, this is pretty daggone charmed? Well, I don't know whether I had the perspective because for many years, you know, I was like a series wound motor. You know, my friends make fun of me. It says a series wound motor runs to destruction if it doesn't have a load. <laughs> so, so, so. I, I really was like uh, this um, <laughs> uh, hyperactive, uh, driven human being. And I'm not sure I actually sat back and reflected on things very much. But as I got older and uh, uh, I had more and more failures, uh, I had to start reflecting on why. How much of it was due to me? How much of it was because I didn't plan? How much of it was because of circumstance or a macroeconomic factor? And that started giving me perspective. And so, you know, I started learning that while the, um, you know, I started learning that every stumbling block actually becomes a stepping stone for success. So you start modulating your uh, successes and failures and if you choose to reflect upon them you know you get a very good perspective yeah it's hard to do too right i mean to be able to look at oneself critically while also it sounds like you had optimism along with that to say whatever i discover is only going to help me move forward you talk about attitude i know that you know that's something that you've uh, focused on even in your book and on your teams and how you've kind of put those things together when you think about attitude, 
do you think of diversity of attitude or do you think that every team or person that is successful has some common traits in the way that they approach problems or tough things? You know, it's actually, uh, it's dealing with adversity is probably the toughest thing everyone goes through. You know, I've learned that when you're, when you are faced with adversity, you have to either walk away from it or you have to deal with it. You can't let it swallow you. Yeah. Uh, a professor of mine, of, actually a professor friend of mine, he's not my professor, I used to collaborate with him uh, when I was in GE, uh, in Schenectady at their corporate research center. And we were doing advanced research and this professor from RPI used to come and visit me. And I was dealing with a very difficult situation and upset and he took me for a walk and he said, Sandeep, look, uh, let me tell you something. He said, why are you upset? He said, if you're somebody who has one sandwich on his plate and somebody stole that sandwich, you should be upset, very upset. But you're someone who has a number of sandwiches on their plate. So what if somebody took one? <laughs> and, and that actually went home. And I've always used that. Even I tell my children this. Look at the opportunities that you are creating. So if you lost one or you have a setback, look at the others. Look forward, don't look back. And so you have to basically develop that over time. It doesn't come naturally because all of us tend to cling to things that uh, sometimes don't favor us yeah. and we regurgitate and we get upset. But that is just a waste of time because how can you correct something that's done? Yeah, <laughs> It's done. <laughs> That's something that, do you find that the the mistakes and the failures of getting really hit in the face over and over again are a critical piece to being able to come to that level of perspective? Another way that I kind of think about this is I've been reflecting more so lately about the things that my folks even taught me growing up. And some of the times I was like, God, I wish I could just have listened to that. But in a weird way, that's kind of an impossible thing to ask myself because at the time, even if I was somehow the most attentive to listen to that piece of advice. I don't know that it would carry the same kind of weight as failing through those things and then going, ah, that's why they were saying it. Do you believe that it always has to come in the form of personal experience for advice or wisdom to really matter? Yeah, I believe that all of this has to come through personal realization, right? Because it's very difficult to otherwise put it in context and you don't internalize it. You know, I, uh, I, I actually had a very, I'm going to tell you a story. So I was running a business. I was very young. Somebody thought I was smart. I don't think I was, but they, they basically put me in charge of the business. And fortunately, for a couple of years, it grew at 50% a year. And so, of course, you think you're walking on water, right? And then all of a sudden, we made some terrible mistakes, probably hubris and just bad decisions and uh, inexperience and, and the company was going to lose a lot of money. So I went to my boss and told him that we're going to lose over half a billion dollars. And he said, you're crazy. We're not going to lose that money anyway. We did. And at the end of the year, um, at the end of the year, you know, I sat down and said, you know, I don't care whose mistake it was. I was in charge. So it's my responsibility. You can sit there blaming people or situations and circumstances, but that's not it. So I went to the management and said, hey, I think you should let me go. Uh, they said, no, 
you're too valuable, you know every part of the business. But I said, at least let me step down because I know how to clean this up. And they were shocked. They said, this is really odd. You, you're actually asking to step down and you're going to report to one of your subordinates. And I said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. I got to clean it up because it was on my conscience. So in a year, I cleaned it up and then they double promoted me. And, uh, you know, a uh, few years later, I was asked to, you know, the uh, president of the company, the CEO of the company asked me to go and fix another one of his divisions. And I, um, so I was being interviewed by the chief operating officer and I asked the chief operating officer, why would you trust me when I damaged one of your businesses? And he told me, he said something really, he said, Sandeep, we don't want to lose that expensive education that you had. <laughs> so, and so I, I was picked for the other job. And fortunately, that turned out to a, to a raging success. And uh, they were really happy. But I think the point I'm making is you need to have <coughs> personal experience in going through pain and reflecting upon it before you can actually internalize it and say, okay, what are you going to do about it? No, I mean, it, when you were given that opportunity to kind of clean it back up, did you, were you good at carpet, like basically putting it out of your mind that I'm stepping down and doing this thing? The reason I ask is I know that's difficult for a lot of folks to do because there is a bit of this well, the world already knows me as this. If I do this, what are they going to think of me? Was that hard for you to do? Or did you just say, no, my, my commitments here are way more important. I don't care. I don't think I even thought about my personal situation. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all I thought about is, hey, we, I knew exactly what we did, the mistakes we made. Yeah. And the job was to clean it up. I mean, it, there was no other thought. Where did that right. come from, Sandeep? Is that like, did you grow up watching your parents? Like, where did, because that isn't, I would say not, that's very uncommon to be singularly or can be singularly focused on just doing what's right. Um, where does that come from? I don't know. I think, uh, I mean, obviously my parents had a very influential, um, they had a lot of influence on me in the way I thought and the way they brought me up. Yeah. You know, and uh, how to basically keep to commitments. But I think also it's essentially uh, this, it's actually a moral factor, right? Like if you believe you were responsible for something, then you have to have at least the dignity and honor to go clean it up if you were responsible. So I think it's, it's more that commitment about who are you, you know, you can't just walk away from failure, especially if you created it, mm. right? Because it's also building, it builds you because, you know, if you look at it, uh, think about this, if you have made a mistake and you're willing to go correct it, how will people judge you? They'll at least know that, hey, this person made a mistake, admitted it, was willing to work and fix it. But if you just walked away from failure and tried another job, Right, and your record was like that. You'd always be known <laughs> as somebody who ran away from failure, mm. and that doesn't build a lot of character or, uh, you know, your ability to deal with things and experience. Because in life, you know, whether it's you know, you have to go through a certain number of cycles of success and failure to truly appreciate 
uh, your abilities. It's like, as one of my mentors taught me, he said, you know, steel is made by repeatedly taking iron, heating it, beating it, cooling it. And you have to go through the same thing. You have to be battle tested. You talk about, um, I want to talk about both battle tested and commitment. I think it goes very in line with what you're talking about here. Even before we were catching up on this conversation and we were, you were talking about commitment and um, I'm always curious what keeps somebody doing what they're doing for the time that they need, you know, they believe is good or adequate to do it or whatever it is or their intuition tells them. And you said something very simple and then you've said it a couple more times even in this conversation. You said, well, it's a commitment I made. And it, it reminds me of there are times in my life where I'll turn to my wife and I'll go, okay, are you ready? I'm about to promise myself something. She goes, I'm ready. And she knows when I say that, that means like higher heck water. Like I, I, we're going to see this thing through. And so just know that if it gets rocky, like we got to stick with it for whatever it is. It might be a family thing, might be a professional thing. That level of commitment, I don't see often. I do see in a world today where we easily want to just jump if it doesn't suit what we are. Where I've seen you talk about, well, look, this is basically a commitment and a promise I made, so I have to see it through. Why is that so important? I mean, is that the the honorable Sandeep that's saying that, or is it because you know there's something special when you stick to those kinds of things? No, I think it's this two things, right? It's defining who you really are, and it's how you also want to trust other people. You know, you, you use the same mirror. You use a mirror to basically also uh, deal with other people. You know, I've always maintained that uh, respect is mandatory, but trust is earned. Mm. How do you earn trust? It is through commitments, keeping commitments. It's whether, are you accountable? You know, we talk about responsibility a lot, but what about accountability? Yeah. You know, they all go hand in hand. So I think it's, uh, if, you, if you want to be a leader, right, you need to be trusted. Because leaders, uh, you know, Joel Arthur Barker, he's a futurist, has written a beautiful definition about a leader. He says a manager manages within a paradigm. And a leader manages between paradigms. <laughs> so when you manage between paradigms, you have to go, you have, there's a chasm. You have to cross that chasm because there's a paradigm shift. Yeah. And we want, if the chasm is sufficiently wide, you need people to follow you to help you basically bridge that chasm. And how are they going to follow you if they don't trust you? So it's extremely important to build that trust. And you can't ask people to keep commitments if you won't keep your commitments. Because that is not leadership. Yeah. So it's extremely important that you set the standard. Just like if you're a parent, you have to set the standard for your kids. Despite the pain sometimes, right? That's probably the most important. Yeah, but that's part, that's part of parenting, right? It's <laughs> part of everything, right? And I think that's something so easy to want to walk away from sometimes when you do it. Very true, very true. When you, I want to go a little bit back to your, the battle-tested years of, you know, and probably still doing it. I know we were catching up and you were talking about that and the battle-tested years of, you know, being a part of a team that creates Bluetooth and the G's, you know, going through that and then running these companies that are iconic in our, in our world. You talked about just saying yes, right? This is just anytime you were given an opportunity, you, you said, 
Yes. How difficult was that to do? Um, especially, I mean, I imagine the invite is flattering to go run and be, you know, president of Ericsson or, you know, make, you know, get BlackBerry to where, you know, we knew it at one point in time. Like, what are those things? Why is saying yes so fundamentally important? And at any point in time, did you ever hesitate? It's a really good question. You know, one of my beliefs is that uh, you have to dream with conviction. Okay, because if you don't dream with conviction, you have enough skeptics telling you why you will not get there. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I started my career, I wanted to go into mobile phones. This was way back in 1984. And everybody told me, are you nuts? Why are you throwing away a perfectly good career this and going into something nobody wants? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is a fad, Sandeep. Like, don't get into this. No, they said, they said, you know, uh, a big consulting company says there won't be a million phones sold by the year 2000. And by the way, you know, phones are phones are like backpacks. You know, you're carrying several pounds on your back. Yeah, that's and, right. uh, but all technology evolves. And I said, this is going to be an indispensable tool for human communications. And so I bet on it. But then for years, I was a, I was a researcher and a very respected researcher. I was paid a lot of money and to do mathematics and it was fun, you know, and I had a really fantastic team. I was allowed to go and pick the bigger, best and brightest minds from around the world. And nobody ever hesitated in giving me more funding to do research. So it was perfect. Okay. Uh, publishing papers. But then I said, you know, the weird thing is I don't even know how to build the products I'm researching. So I, the first time I got a chance to go into product development, I put my hand up and they picked me. And I never knew what it was to get out of one's comfort zone. And the first meeting I attended, I realized that everybody in the room knew far more than me. And that was an unusual situation because usually it was the other way because I was a researcher, right? That's right. In, in research environment. And then I said, oh gosh, how am I going to lead these people if they think I'm an idiot? <laughs> so... <laughs> So I used to get up in the morning, I used to get up at four in the morning and study and study and study and work in the lab with the guys. And they taught me a lot, you know, became a sponge and absorbed as much. And then two years later, I was, you know, on par and I was able to make some good decisions. And then I did that repeatedly. I kept getting out of my comfort zone because I've now got a formula how to adapt and adjust and learn. And uh, when I did that sufficiently large number of times, you know, which took about 12 years, uh, everyone realized that this is the only guy who's rotated through every department and has the experience and skill. And that automatically became my ticket for promotion because I'd covered all my bases. Yeah. So getting out of your comfort zone, actually doing things and getting battle tested because you're actually on the job and you have to deliver. And that gives you a tremendous amount of confidence, right? Because once you've built that formula, which is why when people said, hey, you know, move to this country, move your family to this country and go fix a business. It wasn't a very alien concept to me because I had done it all along. Yeah. Sandeep, how do you, what do you tell somebody right now who uh, says, Sandeep, I, I got this thing that I want to pursue, a role in the company, a growth, whatever. But I know nothing about insert, finance, product, marketing, whatever it might be, technology. I know nothing about it. 
right? I feel like I'm gonna be exactly in that same room you were, but they don't know this background story. Like, what do you tell them to make the first step? There's so many folks right now that are holding themselves back from being able to pursue something because it isn't in the context of the domain they think. What do you tell them to get them moving that first direction? Yeah, so, you know, this is, um, I think it's learning. It's investing in learning. And it's your curiosity of what you want to learn. Uh, It's one of the reasons I also wrote the book. Because what happened is when I was 39 years old and I was promoted to being a general manager, of course I knew nothing about finance. I knew nothing about really creating a strategy. Was I technically competent? Yes. Was I operationally savvy? Yes. But there were many things about building a business and running a business that I didn't know. Which is why I also failed the first time because I didn't challenge many groups and what they wanted to do. So you have to base, you cannot challenge if you don't have knowledge. So you have to build up your knowledge base. And that's the first step. It's knowledge and experience and your attitude that help you go far. So uh, I would basically say that you first have to acquire knowledge. And I did a lot of reading. I talked to a lot of mentors, consultants, friends, and you have to spend the time. There is no substitute. You have to spend the time and acquire that knowledge. And then you have to put it to practice and look at the results. So there's no substitute for that. It takes years and years. It took me 12 to 15 years to get that sort of knowledge. You see, so you see this very much as you're, you're, going, you're going to get an education, therefore it isn't that foreign to you that you would volunteer for something you don't know. This is kind of what I'm hearing. This is the part that always goes through my mind as a bit of, it kind of makes me wonder like, well, the logic seems skewed. You know, we enter this world knowing nothing and we go study a thing that we learn and then we hopefully get an opportunity to learn more. And now we're considered a product person. And now when we want to branch into general management or something like that, we immediately forget that entire process that took us to get there, that we also knew nothing at some point. Why do you think that amnesia happens for folks? Why is it that we forget that this is literally how we got to today, getting to tomorrow is probably going to require the same amount of learning to get there. Why do we forget that, you think? I don't, I don't know. That's a very difficult question. I haven't really thought through that. But... You know, uh, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, like when I got out of uh, my business uh, business school, uh, I had all the theory, but I didn't know how to apply it. Mm-hmm. Because you need actually an avenue to apply it. Right? It's like, it's like whether, you know, uh, you're playing baseball or cricket or anything. No amount of practice in the nets matters. Okay, because... To be a good player, you need to have, you need to have some talent. Yeah. You need to have technique, and you need to have temperament. And it's that temperament, you only develop that temperament in the field when you're facing tough opponents. Right. The other two you might inherently have built, but you cannot build the third one unless you have the experience. And so I always tell people that look, you know. You can be armed with any amount of bookish education, but if I put you in a real situation, how will you cope with it? Okay, and I think, I think a lot of people, I think 
what holds them back is the fear of the unknown. And you have to be able to surmount that. And, uh, you know, I, um, I have a daughter who is, uh, who's a psychology major. And uh, I always told her she'd be good at finance. And she never believed me. She said, what do I know? I know nothing about finance. So I said, why don't you try? And uh, I think she conquered her fear and she applied to a very good school. She went to a top MBA school and uh, graduated Dean's List and became an investment banker. Wow. It's a story, right? It's a, it's a story about if you conquer your fear, I mean, Bertrand Russell says something very profound. And he's, he says the first step to wisdom, no, he said, sorry, it goes something like this, I'll paraphrase. Conquering fear is the first step to wisdom. Yeah. And it's so true. It's the truth. Yeah. No, I, I think about folks that have achieved, like yourself, that have continued to achieve a mindset of being okay putting themselves out there, whether on purpose or by accident, had some experiences in their life early on that kind of forced them to get, you know, the proverbial hit in the face, right? And, and know that they can survive it. And more importantly, know that they can thrive from it. And that becomes a nature that is, it is hard to teach. I've, you know, I wish I could almost insert this chip into folks' brain and just go, trust me, it's going to be fine. And even if it's not fine, you can always, there's always an again, right? You can always try again. Um, but that's very difficult, you know, to, to be able to convince someone of that. Do you remember the first time that you had that moment where you're like, wow, that hurt? But you know what? I'm back. Is it when? Is it that first business that you ran, or was it something before that? Oh, it, uh, I'm I'm 65 and I face it regularly, even today. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, uh, every business is so different. Yeah. And every week I have a new problem to solve. Yeah. And uh, you cannot rest on your laurels and your experience. And there's no point in saying I have 30 years experience. Yeah. It doesn't matter because it's a new day, mm-hmm. and the problems are never the same. So I don't think you ever get used to that. That's not a feeling that you can, if you get comfortable, right? Uh, it's very difficult. So you have to go into every problem, you know, with some amount of courage and courage and conviction that you can solve it with the clear feeling that you might fail. Okay. But you can only try. Yeah. Okay. So that's just an attitude that I've developed over time that it's this lack of fear and attempting. You know, there's another favorite saying, of mine. two other favorite sayings, and it's on, I've said this on a number of podcasts. You know, one is Bertrand Russell's saying, and, and these are the three quotes that I use as my life philosophy. I said, conquering fear is the first step to wisdom. The second one is by Lord Thomas Dewar. It says, um, goes like this. It says, the mind is like a parachute. It only functions when open. And the third is a quote by Benjamin Disraeli. Um, And Disraeli said, success is a product of unremitting attention to purpose. Ah. And it's, I think these three are beautiful things to actually um, focus on every day. And failing is part of life. Just take some time to acknowledge it. And I like that you said it never feels, I mean... You never maybe get over that feeling of like, this doesn't feel good, but hopefully you can find some comfort in knowing at some point this too shall pass and we'll get better from it. Um, I want to talk about your book here a little bit, but one thing that you you talked about is talent, technique, and temperament. I love that. 
Is there one more important than the other, or these things kind of have to symbiotically work together? You know, like a PL balance sheet, and you know, like is it is it is it like they all work together? Or do you say, you know what, when all else fails, have this as the most important? Well, it's difficult. I mean, I think uh, you know, if you look at it, talent, technique, uh, you know, is comes from knowledge and your ability to assimilate knowledge, and temperament is more attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, but if I had to pick between the two, I would go with attitude. You would go with attitude. How, yeah. How, how, how do you deal with situations? I mean, it's not, how do you deal with difficult situations? Uh, you know, you need to have that courage and conviction to overcome what's in front of you. And, uh, you know, you can only try. How, how does that manifest in some of the leaders you've looked up to? Is it always this calm demeanor under pressure? What does that look like in, in you know on the battlefield, so to speak, and when things aren't going well? So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an extre- extremely good question. And I've asked myself, what makes good operational leaders? And I call it, in my book, I call it truffles triage and temperature. Uh, The leaders that I really admired operationally, there are many, many characteristics of leaders like vision and managerial courage, and I talk about all that in the book. But the thing that in day-to-day situational, in situations and operational situations, the thing that matters is, the first is developing a sense to uh, predict something bad is going to happen or to uh, not whether it may not be predictable, something bad, but to basically foretell in some way that you're seeing a pattern that you're going to have a problem. And that's what I call truffles, because it's almost like these pigs that are able to smell truffles three feet underground. Yeah. And you develop that sense of smell to know something's going to go wrong. Mm. The second is, what is your ability to triage now that you know something is going to go wrong, what's, how do you triage and diagnose what is the root cause? How do you set up a task force to get to that, get to the root cause? And the third is, how do you manage the temperature of your team? Because in these difficult situations, leaders, some leaders just bang the table, scream, yell, intimidate, demand have tantrums you know that's just completely useless yeah because your team is feeding off your energy if you're panic they will panic or they will just ignore you so the question is how do you stay calm in such a situation and provide clear direction hey try this try this not just have them do shotgun approach do everything systematically like a surgeon basically tell them what to do and you take the blame if something went wrong. You have to unburden your team, okay? Because that is the responsibility of the leader. And you will find that that drives enormous respect and loyalty when you do that. And probably better outcomes in a lot of ways, right? Because if you know you're unencumbered and your leader's got your back, you really don't want to disappoint somebody like that. Exactly, exactly. It creates a... Uh, you just said it much more eloquently. It's exactly they—they they know they don't want to let you down. That's right. 
because and and especially when you're working just as hard right and you're trying everything to move the ball forward of course they're going to back you yeah so cool man Talk, let's talk about the book. That's actually how we and you really got introduced. Actually, a, a mutual friend of ours, Anthony, um, he actually says, you got to talk to Sandeep. He's been helping our company out. Uh, he, I've been, or he's been, actually, I don't think you even came to help their company. You were just working with them as like partners. And he says, I've always found him just be really delightful and impressive anytime we were able to interact. He goes, and he's got this incredible book out. He goes, you, you know, and so if you get a chance, you know, and so this is kind of how, you know, thanks, Anthony, but also, this is kind of how it started with this book. Talk to me first about, before you dive into the book, Your Company's Your Castle, why a book? What was the reason behind, the impetus behind even getting something in written word out there? Yeah, it's interesting. I've always, I always um, you know, wanted to write. I love writing. I, I write extensively. I probably write about 500 pages every year or something. <laughs> and I send it to very, uh, to just, just friends. Uh, but... Uh, you know, a number of my friends, professors, and uh, uh, they told me, they said, Sandeep, you have had a lot of experience over 35 years in mobile phones, in wireless technology, in semiconductors and software. But more importantly, you have a formula of turning around companies. Okay, and you've done that in multiple continents. So... And that formula, most of the people who worked with me said the formula just works. Mm. And so why don't you document what that formula is? Because he, they said, the guys who worked with me said, we've come, we've followed you in three companies or two or three companies. And, and the formula is exactly the same and it just works. And uh, so I said, okay. And I started writing. That's why I started writing the book. And I thought it could help aspiring minds uh, you know, so that they don't make the same mistakes I made. Because I did it by trial and error. And I said, hey, you know, this could be a good jump start, and they could build upon it, which as I said, if I lay the foundation, they can build a bigger castle than I built. Mm. And that's why your company is your castle is a fitting title. <laughs> this is kind of, I, I, so the, the concept behind it, maybe talk to folks now they're kind of understanding, okay, why Sandeep did it? You want to be able to help folks moving forward. In what way? Kind of what was the intent about how you were helping folks build this? Is this a, would you tell somebody this is kind of a tactical playbook or would you say this is more mindset or a combo of the two? So there's two parts of the book. You know, I think there are eight or eight chapters that focus on eight structural elements of building each company. So it gives you that holistic view of how to build a company, not just one dimension, right? And why these, these different elements have to be stitched together uh, and how you stitch them together. So I actually provide templates and recipes that you could use. Okay. Uh, and the second part is, which is a much smaller chapter, it's the final chapter, is that now that you've built your company, how do you build yourself to run it? Oh, yeah. And so the second part is actually uh, seven beliefs that I have, which I've kind of talked about in a smattering way. But these seven beliefs are important. How to build yourself in order to run the company. Do you find that, do you find that's the hardest part is once you've got all the pieces moving and the company hopefully headed the right direction, 
you can have all those things going the right way, but if you didn't spend any time internally building you, the leader or the person who is running this company, it can all be for naught. Yeah, I think they're inseparable. They're intertwined. Because if you don't, on one hand, if you don't have the techniques to build a company, and this, you will not be able to actually build it. Uh, and on the other hand, if you don't have the right attitude and the mindset and some of the things we've discussed, it's hard to acquire the former. So the two are inseparable. Along those lines with them being inseparable, those two things, what I'm always curious about is you have, uh, you have an incredible amount of founders out there. Actually, we're just having a, um, a conversation uh, with some fellow founders, investors, and folks of that nature. And I'm always curious, particularly in the VC space, I'm always curious, like, what do they do to pick? You know, yeah, they got these company, um, you know, pitch sheets and diagnoses, and they look at the overall market and where they're going. But I'm always fascinated with, in, <clears throat> with investment groups that look at the, the leadership, the founder and then the team, right? Or the leader and the team that's around that. And actually high marking that as a major reason they decide to invest or not. Um, and to all the things what I've kind of digested with all that is they're okay with a product or with an offering that might be just over a 60% chance of being successful with a 100% chance that they use the, that team in any other company. They would bring that team with them to any other company if they had to. Is that kind of how you've built teams when you thought about not only making sure the self and the company is inseparable, but that you have this team that can really go the distance when you are building something. How important is that? And has that been a fundamental part of your philosophy as you, as you built these things? Yeah, but the first thing is, you know, before you talk about the team, uh, you know, you talk about, actually, I'm writing a little article for on my LinkedIn post on exactly this topic. Uh, it's uh, why do several reports cite that 65, 75, some large percentage of startups don't return their investment, mm -hmm. right? And why is that? It's an in interesting question. And I believe there are uh, several reasons, right, that they're not successful. So you first have to understand what you want to accomplish. Like the first thing I look at when I look, I'm asked to evaluate a number of companies, right? And I, here are the criteria I use, okay? Uh, and obviously, you can't get answers to all of this on day one. Uh, but the first is, how realistic is their business plan? You know, really check the facts. Is, is it wishful or is it realistic? The second is, how deep is their market knowledge? Is there a need for the product? Right? Uh, do they know about pricing? Do they know about their competition? What is their sustainable differentiation? What is the timing of the product? Do they have true market knowledge in order to succeed? The third is, hey, can they execute? What is their execution model in delivering to their commitments and that business plan? Right? And four is, how do they manage their money are they fiscally prudent? Do they know how to manage money and make that every dollar go as far as it can? Then once you have this template, you can say, who are the people you need in order to do all of this? And you put them in the right spots because they need to fill all the skills. Like if you look at, if you look at this 
this Your Company is Your Castle, which is my book, and how to build resilient business, there are eight structures. Do you have people who can cover those eight structures? If, you're only, if you only have one structure, the probability of success is low. Now, initially, that's okay for the first year or something like that, but depends on, on what your business plan is. So it's extremely important to actually understand what you want to get done and then pick the people with the experience and knowledge to fill those holes and to execute. When you think about putting the right folks in the right specific structures to manage, do you almost see that as hyper-focused singular on that structure? Another way said is, is it okay that they share? Can one person do two different things? Oh, absolutely. In a startup, you want switch hitters. Yeah. You don't want uh, you don't want uh, super specialists in one area who won't help anyone else uh-huh. because they also tend to be myopic. You know. So no, no. You want people with the vision that they understand that my job cannot be successful if I don't have cooperation from these other departments. And so you have to build that symbiosis. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. What when you? When you get these things right and you find that there's still friction in organization, I think about the bigger companies that you've run, what do you find your most important role was, you know, as kind of the head of that, you know, ship, so to speak, when you're, when you got, especially particularly a complex, more complex, more people, more things going on, there's a lot of places where you as the president or the CEO, you know, or the chief, whatever, can exert themselves into where have you found it to be most successful when you are finding a, a good amount of friction within a complex organization? Yeah, the first thing is, you know, uh, you need to have a good annual operating plan and you need to have diagnostic metrics. Because, you know, being in meetings and having opinions is one thing. Uh, people don't get that. Uh, but you have metrics. Metrics are telling. They're diagnostic metrics. They're telling you that a particular function is broken or a particular metric is broken and therefore you can dive into it because you need to have hard facts. It cannot be based on innuendo. It cannot be based on opinion. It has to be hard facts. And so when you actually can show that something is broken and how it permeates across multiple groups, then you can actually say, okay, Three of you go fix it, right? And this is how I would approach it. But without that, those metrics, it's very, very difficult to do that because all that happens is it says you said, I said, and we are conflicted because we each have our opinion. And so I like to basically do things with data-driven uh, decision-making and saying, okay, we all agreed on these metrics, And uh, like an example is, let's say, delivery accuracy. And you say the customer wants it on a certain date. You're perpetually two months late. Now, how do you expect to have a business? Mm -hmm. And then you go and diagnose why. You have to ask, you have to get into detective mode in a way and say, why? You know, you follow that paper trail and you ask questions. You ask questions until you get the right answers. And it's not about interrogation. It's about trying to find out what is the root cause And that's earlier I talked about truffles, triage, and temperature, and that's the triage factor, you know. And so whenever there is a lot of conflict in a group, you try to break down and say why, what went wrong, right, and pinpoint with data, 
You can't just be accusatory. You have to have data. What is the art in that when you balance the art behind having the facts down and then be, is it the delivery and the execution or is it the investigative work? How do you balance those two? Well, it, it takes, it, there's a couple of things, right? It's also like how you diagnose, uh, diagnosing using the metrics and triaging, it takes experience. You can't do it without experience. But, uh, and, but then how you deliver the message is also important. You know, you have to find each person absorbs information a different way. Each person reacts to information a different way. So you've got to find a right, the right forum in way to communicate it. And I've made a lot of mistakes. You know, earlier on in my career, I used to be, uh, you know, I, everyone thought I was an expert at so many things. And I'd give extremely direct feedback. And that didn't work always. Yeah. Right? So there's a way to, and with time, uh, you know, to the point that I think in one of my last jobs, I, uh, the CEO told me, said, what happened to you? you're getting soft. <laughs> I said, that's what happens when, you know, you get a few years under the belt. <laughs> now it's probably worth having. I do think that it, it reminds me always of when someone will use a, well, I just call it like it is. That's probably saying you've heard folks that when they deliver really cutting hard facts, go fix it. And you recognize what you just said. They're so important, right? Because if you know that, you know, if you deliver that, that person may take it as this is 100% your fault and take it very personal. Now you have almost right. zero chance of it getting fixed, right? Because there's a lot of emotion involved in that. Whereas being able to deliver it in such a way that says, good thing we've discovered this. Now it's time to go get this done because we've got a lot of people that we need to you know, figure out. Th those things are not always very obvious, especially when you think about fact-driven. But I do like the way that you said you got to have those two things balanced. In the times that we've gotten to know each other, you've mentioned a few things in the past. And as I started looking at your career, you kind of took this thing right out of my brain. It was like your mind reading, right? And you, it was something that was perme you know, it was percolating there. And finally you had said it before I even asked. And it was, you've been given four or five opportunities to be, to take the reins of CEOs of different companies that, you know, as a position, folks have invited you. And that seems to be the one thing you've declined uh, in your journey. And when I asked you about it, you said, you got to know thyself and know where you best serve. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what does that mean? And how might folks really apply that with what they're trying to do, especially in a world where being CEO seems to be glamorized quite a bit, and it's easy for all of us to just want to do the job? Yeah, it's actually um, interesting. It's a very good question because, um, you know, uh, I once did a survey they have these, you know, when, when you're a senior executive, uh, they have, the HR department does surveys on people. And there was a survey, I think it's called the Hayes survey or something like that, where they rate the executive based on three factors, accomplishment, association, and power. Power, we all know association is how do you want to network and be accepted by your peers, etc., and accomplishment. And my score was very interesting. So the, they came back and said, it's really interesting. My score was very high on accomplishment. Clearly, that was my preference. Low on, not so high on association, but low on power. 
which many people thought was odd because they thought, uh, given my position, power would be the most important. Mm. But what was interesting is my when I answered the whole battery of questions and they plotted this curve, they also did that with a 360-degree view by talking to my employees, talking to my bosses, talking to my peers. And the cumulative score between my own rating of myself and those of the 360-degree view was within 2%. And, and I think that's very telling that about why I know myself, because I'm driven by accomplishment. And I know if I want to accomplish, and that gives me the biggest satisfaction, nothing else. And I'm an extremely detailed-oriented human being. And so for me to be the second in command or the chief operating officer and knowing all the nitty-gritties and getting things done gave me that satisfaction because it, it kind of goes with my psyche. Yeah. Uh, do I enjoy, can I run a company? Absolutely. I've been president of a couple of companies and made a lot of money for people. Uh, can I talk to analysts? Absolutely. Uh, can I basically <clears throat> um, make a lot of speeches and things like that? Sure. But, you know, but can I draw a vision? Yes. And a uh, strategy and manage. But do I enjoy that? Uh, not so much. I really enjoy the problem solving part. It doesn't mean the other thing is not equally important. It's probably more important. But what do I like? What do I get pleasure from? And where's the passion coming from? Because if somebody's working 65, 70 hours a week, you have to have some passion behind it, otherwise it'll go away. Yeah, that's right. So I think that the fuel, right, of this series one motor, <laughs> it needs that load. And therefore, and that's why I believe that I've chosen the path I've, uh, I, you know, I've picked. And so. Well said. I think that's so important to, to not only know thyself, but to spend time continuing to know thyself. Because I do think that there are plenty of unhappy CEOs COOs and insert the title because they are doing something out of expectation or some, you know, glamorizing of it versus doing the thing that really drives them. Speaking of really drives them, we ask every guest this question. It's about your North Star. You know, here on our team and the way that we think about how we make decisions, how we decide to go left or right, we have this, this saying in this, you know, this North Star that we live by, which is curiosity about judgment, courage above all. And that just kind of helps us guide where we're going. But I found that entrepreneurs, great leaders, good people always have that thing internally that drives them. Sometimes it's from a parent that they learned early on. Sometimes it's brand new. They've re-sculpted it. And now it's this new thing. What's your North Star, Sandeep? And my guess is you've already alluded to it a few times in this conversation, if not said it explicitly. But just for the audience there, what is the thing that keeps you on course? Learning. Learning. It's just learning. You know, when I was, uh, I went to a Catholic school and uh, had some wonderful teachers in the Jesuits. Um, and one of the priests there told me, he told me, young man, it is your decision to be ignorant or not. It's your choice. And every day, you know, I keep this little notebook and everyone makes fun of it. They say he has these two notebooks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one which he keeps all the actions uh, that he, he tracks every day. And the other notebook is, 
when I'm in any conversation, whether it is with friends, with colleagues at work, with customers, with vendors, with anyone, in the conversation, I'll note things that I've never heard before or I'm not familiar with. And I would jot it down in my little notebook. In that evening or that weekend, I will go and study and learn. The whole idea is not to be an expert at everything, but it's to increase that base of knowledge to get a better understanding. And when you have, when you have sufficient knowledge and you have the right attitude, I found that it breaks down barriers to almost every advancement in one's career. It's killer. I think that learning is something that we all can benefit from and not only benefit from, but it is something that we can make a core part of our life. I do think the learning or curiosity, whatever it is, when you don't understand, you hear something, it is nice to go back and go, what is that? Sandeep, this has been incredible. Again, I'm so grateful that Anthony was able to connect us, but more importantly, I'm really grateful to have gotten to know you. Um, and it's clear to me that what you're doing is truly and genuinely trying to help folks just get a little further along in their journey and what they're doing. And your book is a really incredible way for folks to do that. Uh, before I let you go, where can folks best find this book? Is it Where do you find uh, most of most readers are going to to pick a copy up? Yeah, so you get a hard copy, a hardcover copy on Amazon. Um, and then you also have a Kindle version. Mm-hmm. And now I just come out with an audio version of the book. Oh, that's great. Are you dictating it? No. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> uh, I, I actually had a, 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 someone with a British voice read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll get one of these like book showings where you, Sandy, go and you just read a chapter in front of a small audience or a big audience or whatever like that at one of these great bookstores or whatnot. But um, audiobooks are always great, but I think the hardcover is there's just something about the tangible grip of a book that always feels good. So That's right. That's right. And... Uh, you know, and um, so it's available on Amazon. Okay. Uh, I think the audiobook is available on a, on a very large number of sites. Um, but uh, Amazon's probably the easiest one to go and, uh, and get. And it's also, you can see the reviews on it. And, and I've been, I'm thrilled that people have taken time to write the reviews. And they're not short reviews, they're quite long. They're chunky. Yeah, they're like paragraphs up there. Yeah, it means a That's lot right. that somebody's so, doing that. Yeah. No, so, but it, but... You know, I did this. I didn't do this for any other purpose other than trans. You know, make more connections, uh, increase network, and help people. You know, and usually when people call me, you know, I'm available to, if time permitting, to give them advice and uh, help them along if I can, because that gives me great, that great satisfaction if somebody can do well based on whatever I can impart. Yeah, that's incredible. Sandeep, thanks so much. Thanks for being you, and thank you for this time to be able to have a conversation about all things, you know, reflection, people, making right calls and good structures and everything that comes in between. So thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you all for listening. This is the Professionally Offensive Podcast. You can catch us on all platforms. JC out.